Major support for Out to Lunch is provided by the law firm of Jones Walker, established in 1937 with over 375 attorneys in offices throughout the U.S., providing a comprehensive range of services to a local, national, and international client base. JonesWalker.com. And by Hancock Whitney. Hancock Whitney is here for families, here for businesses, here for communities during this challenging time. Visit HancockWhitney.com slash COVID-19 for the latest. And by... Shorten Associates, legal recruiters in Louisiana and Texas. From our socially distanced virtual lunch table in Lafayette, we're out to lunch with Christian Mader, publisher and editor of The Current. It's business, Acadiana style. Welcome to Out to Lunch. I'm Christian Mader. There's a Latin saying you've probably heard, in vino veritas, in wine truth, and I think it's due for an update. Vodka is far more transparent. The art of distilling vodka is the pursuit of purity. There's nothing to hide behind. It actually makes a pretty good vehicle for a story to tell, and telling a story is important if you want to get a leg up in the beverage industry. Of 220 million cases of alcohol sold each year in the U.S., 34% is vodka, the most among hard liquors. So how do you tell a good story? You start with a grain of truth. In J.T. Mellick's case, that's rice. A distillery born on a rice farm in Branch, Louisiana, J.T. Mellick's vodka is a genuine Louisiana product, and in that respect, it's a -a one-of-a-kind in a distilling sector dominated by potatoes and rye. My guest, Mike Fruget, started J.T. Mellick to add a new dimension to his family rice and crawfish farm. It's no gimmick either. J.T. Mellick is a premium spirit that doesn't hide where it comes from. It's named for Mike's great-great-uncle, who migrated to Louisiana to start the farm. The distillery is a new part of the business, and Mike still helms crawfish and rice farming operations, too. The label is also working on a rice-distilled whiskey. Mike Fruget, welcome to Out to Lunch. Thank you. Thank you for having me. When you've got a story like Mike's, you might not need a great storyteller to sell it, but some companies don't have such a strong sense of who they are and why they are. That's where my next guest comes in. Jan Risher is CEO of ShiftKey and a longtime columnist, most recently writing for the Acadiana Advocate. She did her time as a journalist, too, and now teaches a course in memoir writing online. With ShiftKey, Jan puts her nose for a good story to work for her clients, digging into the details to find the kernel of truth that will resonate with consumers. We're bombarded with storytelling and with spin, and Jan's concept is pretty simple. How do you set your brand apart? You tell the truth. And speaking of truth and transparency, Jan actually recently joined Out to Lunch as an associate producer, helping us find stories worth telling. So with that, Jan Risher, welcome to Out to Lunch. Thanks so much. I appreciate it. Mike, I'd like to start with the moment when you, you started bringing JT Mellick's vodka to market, because something that occurred to me is like, look, we make beer out of rice. Uh, vodka is made with a bunch of different kind of stuff. Like the idea of doing a new product maybe isn't so unusual, but but the the, the JT Mellick mark like really invests in the idea of a, of a rice vodka, right? Like that it has that essence. And so I'm curious, like, you know, to some extent, I would imagine that that's not a hard sell in Louisiana where people are proud to buy products that resemble their culture, but maybe outside the bounds of, of, of the state where people might kind of have more purist ideas about what vodka ought to taste like, right? Or maybe that it shouldn't taste like much of anything. Um, was it hard to convince people to try a rice vodka that was very proud about being a rice vodka? Well, um, I guess, I'll take a step back. We we didn't set out to make a rice vodka. We set out to add value to our rice crop. We we had no idea what we were going to make. Um, and we were just brainstorming one day and somebody in the room says, I wonder if you can make vodka out of this stuff. We, we were sort of 
we were in a sort of frustration brainstorming meeting because uh, the price of rice as commodities tend to do had collapsed at that point in time. And so there's a lot of frustration and back and forth in the room, if you can imagine. And, you know, it was sort of somebody threw this against the wall as almost a joke, you know, that you can make one if we can make vodka out of this stuff and then we could all drink it and we wouldn't be worried about the price of rice type of thing. <laughs> so, you know, uh, but I'm, I'm the kind of guy that I'm, I wanted to find out. And, um, I literally got on the internet and, uh, I don't know what I typed in Google, but, uh, I found out that there was a, uh, craft distillers conference in about six weeks and the timing just happened to be perfect. So, uh, bought a plane ticket and, you know, kind of here we are. Um, I can elaborate on, you know, as far as a rice vodka, uh, it's a pretty easy sale, uh, because it tastes so good. You know, we do a lot of tastings in grocery stores, certainly pre pandemic. Um, and we're sort of gearing up to do more of that now, now that things are starting to kind of loosen up, but, uh, uh, we won the at that same conference that I had originally gone to four years before last year in 2020, we won a double gold medal, best in class and best in category for our vodka. You know, that's saying a lot for a little distillery in Branch, Louisiana, out in the middle of nowhere. So, I mean, that's that means we're the best tasting vodka in, in craft distillers in America, you know, like literally. <laughs> So that's a that's a mouthful. It's hard to believe that we actually did that, but uh, it's uh, you know great tasting product. Uh, we don't I don't really promote it as a rice vodka because I don't want to say oh it's this other kind of vodka. It's a great vodka. I, I more promote it as a, as a authentic product from Louisiana. You know, if you see our label, uh, there's a big crawfish on the label. It says there's a big banner on the label that says Louisiana and uh, you know vodka is smaller and rice is even smaller than that it's I mean it's a unique product and um, I'm just proud of the state I'm proud of where we come from and you know when we broke a lot of rules when we made this label uh, we've got that crawfish right there on the label is you know it's huge and people when we were designing that you know people that were experts in the industry says you, you can't put a crawfish on a vodka bottle what what does that have to do with that so well you just don't understand louisiana so <laughs> i think we got it right so yeah i mean obviously you know louisiana is a great way to tell a story right louisiana's got a way of flavoring any idea in people's mind uh you know and storytelling is a big part of, of how you bring a new product to market so you know jan you know your idea is just tell the truth and i hear people shout that at me as a journalist all the time, I feel like um, it seems like a simple idea, right? Stick to the truth and uh, it'll set you free, uh, but maybe not. I mean, aren't all brands really just trying to tell the truth about who they are? I mean, talk to me a little bit more about why that's such a novel idea in, in, in PR. Well, I mean, embellishment comes pretty easily for some people and sometimes it doesn't help. You know, they think more is better, but sometimes more is just more. And if you, you know, to use the vodka example, if you get down to the to the most basic element of it. One of the things I think is fascinating about JT Mellick, for example, is um, Mike's wife, Courtney, once told me that the rice they use is rice that, and you can correct me, Mike, on any of this, but it's a rice that blends well with other things, kind of like rice and gravy. And 
So that rice blends well as a vodka with all sorts of other mixtures. I think that's fascinating. You know, Mike, do you want to jump in there? Did I get it all that right? You, you are. Uh, I'll say that, you know, when we were choosing, um, I guess, the, the, the variety of rice, the, the type of rice, we, we tried a, a lot of different things, but I had a, a hunch on what was going to work. And, um, you know, I'm a cook and um, like to cook for groups and we rice is always part of the meal. And uh, we know our favorite rice and, you know, that sort of thing. And, and a lot of those characteristics turned out to be the right uh, product for the bottle or right product for the ferment, if you will, that produces the, the spirit. So the essence of the grain matters, if that makes sense. What, what variety did you guys land on? Well, the variety is, is sort of a, um, that's part of our recipe, so I, I don't publish that, but uh, okay, we just enough. say we grow it, and um, okay. we're growing more and more of it. Um, you know, it may not matter what kind we use at some point in the future, but uh, it matter it might matter right now. <laughs> um, there's been other rice vodkas that don't quite taste like ours, and so it's, um, you know, I don't know. I'm just paranoid about publishing my recipes. So I'm not digging for your secrets. I just, you know, at some, some level, it's like it would have been surprised to find out it was popcorn rice, right? I mean, it's yeah. something that's like yeah. very aromatic it's, or fragrant kind of thing. Uh, you know, it's, yeah. it's common stuff that we grow in Louisiana, but um, I, I um, you know, I, let me just say that, you know, if it tastes good, then it's probably going to make a good vodka, you know? So, uh, <laughs> okay. I mean, it's interesting enough to learn that, I mean, look, it might be um, common sense to you, but I don't know that your average consumer would assume like the different grains of rice would actually impact the flavor in that way, which I think is to your point, Jan, like the idea that like, look, when we're talking about these details that matter, a consumer might find it fascinating that of 10 different varieties of rice, some people may know that many different types of rice, like this one is the secret one, and we're not going to tell you what it is. That's fair play. No, but like, but that it matters that you can't just sort of grab, you know, grab your, I guess, garden variety. That's definitely not. Yeah, the, well, the whole, yeah. the whole process matters. Uh, it's not just the rice. Um, the way we ferment it, the, the type of yeast we use is probably equally as important, probably 50% of it or more. Um, if you think about a spirit, almost the way you think about uh, a craft brewery. So you can go to a craft brewery and they've got, you know, 20 different kinds of beer and the, you know, the differences between each, each type of beer are just a few, few more pounds of hops or a few more pounds of sugar or whatever it is that they're adding to their batch that really adds the essence of that particular beer. And distillers are essentially beer makers at heart. I mean, we all do the first step the same. We all make a beer. And then the difference between me and a brewery is that we don't drink our beer out of the ferment. We take that beer and then we distill it and we separate the water from the alcohol. And uh, depending on that process and how we manage that distillation depends on what the product comes out as, whether it's a, a low uh, proof whiskey or a high proof vodka. So, so Jan, I, you know, what I'm thinking about is like getting to essences, right? Which I imagine is a lot of what you have to do when you're sitting with clients. And, and so something that comes to mind is, right, the idea that somebody might, like Mike, have a strong sense of the company's story. Some people may not. 
But do you find that like you run into cases where you bring an idea of what a company's story is and you meet a little bit of resistance and you're saying, well, but guys, this is the story. This is the thing that that will really connect with consumers. And, and how do you get them to see the narrative from your point of view? You're not always successful, you know, and that is something that happens often. Well, not often. It happens occasionally where like I walk into a place and I will just go, this is the story. But for whatever reason, they have a hesitancy or a lot of times um, companies and individuals are so deep in the muck of it all that they just fail to recognize stories. And um, we talk a lot about news judgment, even in public relations. And I think that that's been part of our success as a public relations company is the fact that I was a journalist for a while and I know how to recognize stories. And also leading our clients to those, you know, to embrace the stories. I'm doing these memoir classes right now and it's just been fascinating to work with individuals to try. And it's almost the same process of leading them to connect the dots, to figure out their own stories. You know, sometimes we don't, we don't realize why we are the way we are, or, you know, we have to look at one of the exercises we do in one of my memoir classes is I encourage them to get an eight foot piece of butcher paper. And this works. I've done this with clients. I got this actually idea from doing it with clients. And we start at the beginning and we put today as the last date and we make a timeline and we put everything in there on the whiteboard or on the butcher paper that has happened, you know, a real timeline of when so-and-so came on board or, I mean, we even get personal in terms of when people got married or had children and all that. And you just see ways that businesses change. You see ways that life changes. It's, um, it's super powerful to, to take the time really to, for someone to prompt you to ask all the questions that seem so obvious to you that you don't even notice. And therefore you don't recognize them as being critical elements of your story. You're listening to Out to Lunch. I'm Christian Mater. I'm talking to Jan Risher of ShiftKey and Mike Frugge of JT Mellick. You know, you know, Mike, it occurs to me that, look, you, you come from a line of farmers, like the farm that you guys are working from has been in the family for a long time. I mean, that's the, the, the namesake of the brand and, and all that. But obviously, you're still operating as a crawfish farmer, rice farmer. Um, but with the success of JT Mellick, I mean, do you think that you're beginning to think of yourself primarily as a distiller or, or maybe that the future for the family business might be to, to look at yourselves, you know, more in, in, in the future as, you know, spirit makers as opposed to, to farmers? Does that transition happen? Oh, it may happen, but we're, <laughs> we're a long way from that. We're, we're still very much uh, farmers, but taking a step back to your previous question, you know, and, and getting help with your story, um, I'd like to add to that, you know, when when we first started developing our story, I mean, I didn't come to the table with the name J.T. Millick, uh, and I didn't come to the table thinking that I was a fourth generation rice farmer. It was really after we sat down and started putting our story together that uh, I remembered things that my grandfather had told me. And, you know, uh, I can go into that if you'd like me to in, in, in detail in the bottles because it's really all there. Um, JT Millick was my great, great uncle John. And he, 
they immigrated from Germany. They settled originally in the mid Midwest, somewhere in Indiana, and they decided to move to South Louisiana uh, for better opportunities to buy land, cheaper land, whatnot. It took them two years to get here. They settled out here in the middle of the marsh, so to speak. Um, Louisiana's landscape in the southern part in the prairie was a much different place than it is today because they didn't have drainage back then. So there were high ridges and there were freshwater marshes everywhere. And uh, those freshwater marshes turned into the original rice fields. And that, those were, they planted a style of rice called Providence rice. And uh, Providence had to provide the water because you, you if you didn't get the right rainfall, you didn't have a rice crop. Uh, there was no irrigation, there was no pumps, there was no machinery to pump water out of the ground. So they had to depend on Providence to provide those original uh, grain crops, if you will. And uh, that was a style of rice that was, you know, I, I looked it up and, you know, style of rice that was grown from here to Beaumont only into Houston. And that was the birth of the, uh, of the rice industry. And so, you know, we, we started putting our story together and, you know, my grandfather always talked about uncle John and, you know, just kept working and we kept working on the story and, you know, it all seems obvious now, but it wasn't when we first started working on the story, it wasn't even remote. I mean, you, you would be amazed at the crazy names we came up with and, you know, and you know, here I am now, I tell the story with ease, I'm a fourth generation rice farmer. I never thought of myself as that, you know, I just, I'm still here on the farm and I'm just farming because that's what we do, you know, but uh, the story, you know, if you really put it all together, it becomes an amazing story. And it was always there all the time. You know, I didn't even know it. So. And that's exactly what I'm talking about. Like just it's there, but sometimes people don't connect the dots. And, and my theory is it makes, life make a lot more sense it makes products make a lot more sense it makes organizations make a lot more sense when you take the time to connect the dots and figure out at least that story you know there's always other stories as well but you've got this one big overarching story that um can build a product for example do, do you find that the, the stories repeat i mean like that that there are similar patterns and i don't mean to say that like people don't have stories that make their brands unique, but that like that, you know, maybe in the process of discovery, like you described, like how often it is just kind of putting the pieces together or, um, or, you know, some, some kind of like, um, you know, rubrics that you can use to kind of figure out where that story is going to be, you know, so you're not just starting blind. Yeah. Well, one of the things I do, um, and this is, I'll just talk for a minute about the individual memoir things. You know, there's some real basic questions. We all have, um, hopefully we all have some love story that when we just approach love with wild abandon, and that's always a good story. I mean, we could, I'm sure I could ask you, when did you in your life approach love with wild abandon? And you, you're welcome to tell us if you'd like, Christian. You know, but, me? Yeah. Love, I've, I've actually been, I'm, so I'm married uh, and I've been with my high school sweetheart since I was in high school, I guess you would call it a high school. So, so I approached love with with wild abandon when I was like seventeen. <laughs> so twenty years ago. Do you remember like the details of it? Because another thing I tell my students and and my clients is this is corny, but I say it specific is terrific. And of course, you already know that as a journalist. But 
like you remember like that moment when you know you just weren't even thinking straight because you were so in love so my point is like there are questions you can ask individuals there are similar questions you can ask businesses where everybody has a story about those things um you know for individuals when was a time you were seriously hurt or sick and the surrounding of when was a time you know what was the story of your birth what was the story of your parents meeting there's just so many um so much power to stir story i there's a guy from emory university his name is um, marshall duke and he's done all this research on story and the power of story and this specifically the power of story for children and children who know their family stories better are more resilient than children who don't period i mean there's no question about it and like he's even this guy marshall duke has even developed these 20 questions to ask children and to a person in the research he's done he's been doing this research for four decades the children who can answer the stories about you know where their parents met what kind of work their grandparents did um if there was a relative whose face got stuck in a specific grumpy because they stopped smiling those kind of i mean that's a little bit of a silly question but the children who can answer the questions about their family turn out to be more successful because they're simply more resilient and it, he says it's because they have an intergenerational sense of self. Their story is bigger than themselves. They're able to figure out where they fit in their family's constellation. And, um, and there's power in that. And there's power in stories for organizations and businesses as well. We do a lot of work also for nonprofits. I love helping nonprofits get to that and tell their story and resonate with others. Mike, I got to imagine just based on what she's described, right? Like considering the multi-generational family being kind of in a big industry, you know, that that's something that you might have internalized. But then it kind of occurs to me that, that there might have been some discovery in that process for you. I mean, things that you might have learned about, you know, the family and, and those kinds of things. I mean, was there stuff that you came upon as you researched the story to, to put it together for, for the brand? Well, we we certainly... I mean, the story, as I said before, the story was there. I knew the parts of the story. I just never put them together in order. Uh, we have gotten um, some relatives who I didn't know uh, existed who have contacted us because now we are a brand and they found us that way. And uh, so I learned a little bit more about um, that. They had two other two other siblings that didn't come to branch. I didn't know that, you know, that they, they uh, went different places, you know, and, uh, um, you know, I learned more details about that travel, you know, of that family from Indiana down to Louisiana. Um, you know, and there, I could go on and on, but I, I think that the essence of it is that, you know, my brother and I, and our whole story, even Courtney and I's story, uh, my wife is Courtney, by the way. Um, it's all, you know, it's all, encompassed into that bottle and um i think we did a really good really good job of uh capturing that uh, and you know I, I do talks all over the state now different uh, uh community groups rotary club kiwanis you know that sort of thing and 
um, it, it's uh, it's really cool to have the story to tell it, you know, and it, it makes the the whole talk that much more interesting. People want to know about the product itself. They want to know about the process, but but the story um, kind of ties everything together, makes it authentic. So, and we are, you know, uh, I, I guess probably the most important thing, the, re the whole reason I started the brand is for the future. It's for the next generation. You know, it's, it's so that uh, you kind of asked that earlier. I don't know if we'll become distillers and less of farmers or what, how that's going to all play out. But I definitely, uh, we set out to look for a brand, a way to build a brand. And it wasn't to build a spirit. It was just to build a brand, a family brand, if that makes sense. Um, because we've been farmers our whole life and farmers by definition are commodity producers. I, I, I own another company where we process another commodity and, and distribute it, but it's a commodity. You know, nobody knows our story. We're just another another commodity competing against other commodities for a price. And uh, I was I'm hoping to to change that to change that that uh, model where we deliver more value and we have a much stronger connection with our ultimate customer, I guess, uh, because of the brand. People are loyal to their brands, you know, and and uh, you can kind of set yourself apart. It allows you to ultimately build a better product because people are willing to support you a little more than, you know, the cheapest vodka out there, <laughs> if that makes sense. Because uh, they've got some cheap, nasty stuff out there, <laughs> I guess, you know. Uh, and so anyway, I don't know if that makes sense, but uh, that's what we set out to do. I set out to build a brand. Uh, it turned out to be a spirit and, uh, you know, our whole story is is right there in the bottle. So. Well, it sounds to me that regardless, it would make for another story that we could tell. Jan and Mike, it was great having you both on the show. Thanks for coming on Out to Lunch Acadiana. Thanks so much, Christian. Take care. Thank you, guys. I really enjoyed it. Appreciate being able to tell our story. Uh, my guests on Out to Lunch Acadiana today have been Jan Risher of Shift Key and Mike Fruge of JT Melick Distillers. We edited this show to fit the time slot here on KRBS, and you can hear more of our unedited conversation and find out more about Jan and Mike and what they do by listening to the Out to Lunch Acadiana podcast, which you can find anywhere you get podcasts and on our website, itsacadiana.com. If you want to know what we look like, you can find photos from this show on itsacadiana.com and on our social media. These photos were taken by Jill LaFleur. You can find more of her work at lafleurphoto.com. Next week, Out to Lunch, Acadiana will be live and in person at the French Press in downtown Lafayette. Until then, you can go to the French Press yourself for breakfast or lunch or order it for delivery. Out to Lunch, Acadiana is a production of INO Broadcasting for itsacadiana.com and KRBS 88.7 FM. The producer of our show is Grant Morris. Our technical producer is Eric Merle. Our associate producers are Marley Richard and Jan Richard. Our researcher is Christine Banowitz. I'm Christian Mader, editor of The Current, Lafayette's nonprofit source for local news. And to find out more of what matters in Lafayette, head over to thecurrentla.com and sign up for our newsletter. I'll see you here again next time around our regular lunch table for more business Acadiana style on Out to Lunch Acadiana. Bye-bye. Major support for Out to Lunch is provided by the law firm of Jones Walker, established in 1937 with over 375 attorneys in offices throughout the U.S., providing a comprehensive range of services to a local, national, and international client base. JonesWalker.com and by Hancock Whitney. 
Hancock Whitney is here for families, here for businesses, here for communities during this challenging time. Visit HancockWhitney.com slash COVID-19 for the latest. And by Shorten Associates, legal recruiters in Louisiana and Texas. Mitchell Foreman wrote and performs all the music on Out to Lunch. You can hear Mitchell's music anywhere great jazz is sold or streamed and at MitchellForeman.com.